As we open God's Word now, we'll read from Psalm 34, on page 547 in the Pew Bibles, where the superscription tells us that this psalm was written by David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's um, referring to the events of 1 Samuel 21, which we'll look at in a a bit. Um, This is David's response after God spares him on that occasion. Psalm 34, beginning at verse one. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Congregation, I mentioned to you last week that um, in the weeks leading up to Easter, I'd like to look at this last section of book one of the Psalms, where a number of these Psalms are actually quoted in the New Testament in connection with Christ's passion. Um, Psalm 34, as we'll see here in a bit, is quoted by John at Christ's death. Uh, Psalm 35 is quoted by Jesus in his farewell discourse on the night that he was betrayed, Psalm 40. It's interpreted by the author of Hebrews as um, speaking of of Christ's death as the final sacrifice, and Psalm 41 is likewise quoted by Jesus with reference to his betrayal by Judas as the ultimate fulfillment of that psalm. 
Um, each of these Davidic psalms that, that speak of, of the suffering of God's righteous king have a, a typological function so that even as they speak of, of the events that really did happen to David, they also point beyond David to David's son who will suffer in so much the, the same way as him and like him will ultimately be delivered. That's certainly the case here in Psalm 34 where I, I think the um, historical background to this psalm is is significant, if, if you'd like, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 21, where there we read of the events that led David to, to write this psalm. Now, boys and girls, you remember how Saul on so many occasions has been trying to take David's life over and over. Saul tries to kill David, and so David is constantly a man on the run. He has been anointed as the next king just a few chapters before this, and yet he is a king in flight. He's a king in exile. And here in 1 Samuel 21, um, at the beginning of the chapter, he's, he's uh, run to, to a place called Nob where he meets the priest Ahimelech who gives him the bread of the presence to eat and uh, even gives him the sword of Goliath as David is, is empty-handed. And then um, after that, in verse 10, it says that David then proceeds uh, into Philistine territory. He goes into Gath which you might remember is the hometown of Goliath, the one who David just slew a few chapters before this. David is so desperate that as he's running from Saul, he goes even into enemy territory carrying the sword of their champion who he killed there. Verse 10 of 1 Samuel 21 tells us that as, as David does this, he goes to Achish, the the king of Gath, really Gath is just a, a city, so it first him as, as the king, but he's, he's some sort of ruler in Gath. You might notice um, the superscription where Psalm actually calls him Abimelech. Though here it says Achish, I, I think this is sort of a throne name. Um, you see the, the term Abimelech used also in Genesis 20 and Genesis 26 when um, uh, Abraham and then Isaac have, have similar dealings with Abimelech, I think this is sort of a throne name that's reused several times. Although it may also be the case that David, in referring to Achish as Abimelech, is sort of setting his story in the same light as Abraham and Isaac and the Lord delivering him. Nonetheless, it says in verses 10 and 11 that as, as David comes before this king, the servants of the king then recognize David. Maybe they also recognize his sword. And they come to Achish and they say, isn't this the, the king or the, the king-to-be of, of whom it's said Saul has slain his thousands, but, but David his ten thousands? And I think we're to understand at this point between verse 11 and verse 12 that David is arrested. Because in Psalm 56, which we sang just before the sermon, um, it, it says in the superscription that David wrote that psalm, Psalm 56, when he had been seized in Gath. It appears in that psalm to be fearing for his life, as if these servants of Achish had been petitioning for the death of this one who had killed their champion. And it says that um, David took these words to heart. He was very much afraid of King Achish. I think it's at this point that he writes Psalm 56 while he's, he's waiting for the outcome with this Philistine king. I take it as he's in prison, as I think that the doors and the gate that are mentioned in verse 13 are prison doors. 
David gets the idea after praying to God in Psalm 56 to pretend to be insane. So it says he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and he made marks on the doors of the gate, even let spit run down his beard. Boys and girls, can you imagine the picture? Imagine the scene. This is the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. If ever there was a more, uh, hardly any more dignified man in, in the Old Testament, this is the anointed king to be. This is the one who just a few chapters before was, was anointed as king. He, he slew Goliath. This is the one of whom the maidens in the land sing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Utterly humiliated appearing insane before his captors. And yet in the Lord's mercy, it apparently works. And it says that King Achish then turns to his servants and says, don't I have enough madmen that, that I don't need one more? And it says he lets him go. So that David then departs from there, and it says in, in the beginning of chapter 22 that he goes to the cave of Adullam where his brothers and all of the outcasts and oppressed and all of, of those in debt and bitter in soul are, are gathered to David, some 400 in number, and he becomes their leader. I take it it's at this point that David sings this song of deliverance in his Psalm 34, where at the very beginning he, he calls out for the faithful with him to rejoice in how God has saved him. Psalm 34 is David's song about that occasion. In fact, you might have even noticed in that last stanza that we sang of Psalm 56, he, he vows to, to praise the Lord, the, the vow and make good of the promises that he there made when he prayed for his deliverance in Psalm 56. I think that's what we have here in Psalm 34. David's song about that occasion. Dale Ralph Davis says it is his sane meditation after feigning insanity. I've called it the, the song of a sane madman. As, as David here delights in the deliverance that God gave him when he was humiliated before his captors. Before we look at the psalm itself, Augustine and, and Luther uh, both drew a straight line from David's portrayal of insanity here to Christ's humiliation at the cross, where he too was mocked and humiliated before his captors, his strength and kingly power concealed so that he was despised and viewed as a madman. I think we see something of that prefigured here in David, that the power of the king is concealed as he's mocked before his captors, spit dripping from his face, but God delivers him and makes him ruler of a ragtag band of outcasts, debtors, and those embittered in soul, which might remind us, too, of the kinds of people that are drawn to our king. And the historical circumstances of, of this psalm, I think we see a shadow of the son of David. And so, too, in its contents, where this humiliated, suffering king, now delivered, sings of how God saved him. And again, of how in his salvation, the people rejoice. Remember, this is a theme that we see often in the Psalms, that as it goes with the king, so it goes with the king's people. This idea of, of corporate solidarity, where, where the fate of the people is bound up in the fate of their king. And so in his salvation, the whole group 
rejoices as he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is a little bit like when, when Christ in Psalm 22 is delivered and then he turns to his brothers to call them to praise God with him for how he's saved him. I think it may also be a, a little reminder for us. Um, it is, I think it was uh, David Clarkson, maybe one of the, one of the Puritans, um, said of Psalm 87 that uh, corporate worship or corporate praise is, is uh, according to the psalmist, to be desired or to be preferred over private worship. David here um, is more than just singing personally of what God has done. He's, he's saying, no, I, I want all of God's people to join with me. He sees something of, of the corporate praise of them doing this together as superior to him simply giving thanks to God in private. Um, so it should be with us. As those who are committed to coming together as the, the, the gathering of God's people to praise him for what he's done, to rejoice in the salvation of our king. That was true of this ragtag band of misfits surrounding David, and it's true of us with our king. And when he was humiliated, assumed the status of David here in this psalm in verse 6, a poor man crying out to God, Crying loud tears, even as, as David says in Psalm 56, you bottle my tears, you keep count of my tossings. Christ became that poor man who cried out to God to be saved, not like David from death, but, but through death. You can see as you just, just look at the, the, the movement of this psalm, you can see how verses 1 through 7 are a, a sort of overview of both David and Christ's suffering. These poor men cried for God to not let them be put to shame that he heard. It says his angel encamped around them. Here we might think of, of the angel in Gethsemane, in Luke 22, who, who came and ministered to Christ. Verses 8 to 10 then go on to speak of how when they took refuge in God, he let them lack no good thing, echoing the words of Psalm 23. And then later on, towards the end of the psalm, it speaks of how though their afflictions were many, God was near to the brokenhearted and delivered them. He comforted them and eventually saved them. And then in verse 20, it says that he kept all of his bones and not one of them was broken. Which might sound familiar because this is the portion of the psalm that's quoted in John's gospel and is explicitly applied to Jesus. If you, you turn to John chapter 19, I mentioned this verse actually this morning in assurance of pardon um, as we were speaking of the the spear that was driven into Christ's side so that blood and water uh, poured forth, symbolizing the, the cleansing that Zechariah 12 and 13 spoke of. Here, right in this same section, it describes in verses 31 to 35 how none of Christ's bones were, were broken, how ordinarily the custom with crucifixions was that they would break the, the legs of those who had been crucified, but that was not the case with Jesus. He died before that was necessary. And then it tells us in verse 36 that this was to fulfill the scripture. And then it quotes Psalm 3420 that not one of his bones will be broken. Now, Jesus is the ultimate Davidic sufferer, who, who though his afflictions were many, God kept his bones and preserved him. And it seems that this is a sort of figure of speech for God simply caring for one's life. But this figure of speech finds an unexpectedly literal fulfillment in Christ, whose bones are literally not broken. 
The quotation of verse 20 in John chapter 19 validates, in fact, demands a Christ-centered reading of this psalm. It leads me to think as we turn back to Psalm 34, that the Lord redeeming the life of his servant and not allowing him to be condemned in verse 22 has reference to the resurrection where Christ is vindicated and his prayer from the cross for God to look upon this poor man and hear him is answered. This is what the spirit of Christ in David is singing of in Psalm 34. It is both a prayer of David and a prophecy of Christ. In fact, that's the very thing that John is teaching us by using the language in John 19 of fulfilled. It is fulfilling a prophecy. It was both a prayer of David and a prophecy of Christ. Whereas we've said before, the things that happened to David happened to him for the sake of the one who was in him. The one who God has promised would come from his line. David, in his suffering in 1 Samuel 21, as a king in exile, bound and humiliated before his captors, his royal power veiled, is a shadow of the one who would proceed from his loins. The song that he sings on that occasion, John confirms, is a prophetic ode to Christ's deliverance. As Reverend Holtfluer says, Christ could be substituted for every eye in this psalm, and it would fit perfectly. And yet here's the beautiful thing about it. As Christ himself leads us in singing this psalm, he also calls us to see how his experience of deliverance is what his people too may expect. There's this interesting feature in this psalm where several times the exact language that the king uses to describe his own experience in the singular is then broadened and applied to his people in the plural. How many speaks of himself in verse 6 as this poor man? Um, the plural of that same word for, for poor is actually used in verse 2 of the humble. He's aligning their experience with his. Um, so in verse 4, when he says, I sought the Lord, and then verse 10, those who seek the Lord. And then once again in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help and God hears and delivers them from their troubles, that's echoing verse 6 and what happened with the king, where he cried and the Lord heard and saved him from his troubles. Same language is used several times throughout this psalm. The the experience of the king in particular is broadened and applied to his people in general, as if those who are aligned with the king may expect the same. So that just as God has delivered his anointed king, he will deliver the king's people. He becomes here the pioneer who has passed through affliction and been delivered, assuring us that though we too may suffer many afflictions as we follow our king, verse 19, he will deliver us from them all. As God has treated the king, so he'll treat the king's people. As he has answered the king's prayer, so he will answer our prayers in him. The king becomes our head. In fact, in verses 11 to 16, our king and head also becomes our teacher, where it says, come, O children, and listen to me. I will will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here, the king tells us precisely how to walk in cruciform faithfulness in the shadow of his cross. 
This transition at verse 11 is almost as if we're, we're turning from a, from a song now to a sermon as the delivered king who has, who has summoned us to praise in verse 3 now calls us to listen. He says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here, our delivered king becomes our prophet. What I, what I think is significant is, is how the fear of the Lord that he here commends to us is echoed in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. One um, writer has called this uh, section, verses 12 through 15, a, a prototype of the Beatitudes. We're in both Psalm 34 and Matthew chapter 5, the, the, the Beatitudes. In both of these sections of Scripture, it is those who acknowledge their poverty, that they are, are poor. And those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake who enter the kingdom. Um, verse 14, those who are peacemakers, who, who love peace and, and pursue it. It's like Matthew 5 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Matthew 5 speaks of those who mourn being comforted. So Psalm 34 speaks of God being near to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew chapter 5 says that God will fill those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So verse 10 of our psalm says it is those who seek God that lack no good thing and will not hunger. They will be filled. Um, Christ goes on to speak just a few verses later in Matthew 5 on multiple occasions of, of guarding your tongue, whether with words of anger or, or lying or, or, or taking oaths. And in Psalm 34, 13, we, we see that same idea of, of guarding your tongue, not speaking deceitfully. The parallels abound. And I think the reason for that is because in both, it is the same speaker. In both Psalm 34 and Matthew 5, it is the suffering king who is calling his people to follow in his footsteps in the way of faithfulness. And it's interesting, the other place in the New Testament where this same passage comes up is in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, um, Peter has, has just described at the end of chapter 2 how Christ suffered faithfully and he did not revile in return. He kept his lips from speaking lies and is an example for us that we might follow in his footsteps. And then Peter goes and he, he applies this to the family and, and to the state and to slaves and masters, all of these different spheres in which we might be called to suffer but must do so faithfully. And then he quotes verses 12 through 16 of our psalm as if they perfectly sum up the kind of cruciform life he's calling us to. Now, one theologian said, for Peter, these lines of our psalm, verses 12 through 16, provide an outline for the Christian life following our king in the way of faithfulness, turning from evil, shunning it, as God says of Job in Job 1, uh, pursuing peace with others, being peacemakers, being reconcilers, keeping our tongues from evil and our, our lips from speaking lies. An outline for the kind of conduct that the Lord calls us to. In the context of this psalm, you could say that this is what David sought to do and what Christ did perfectly it is now calling us through this psalm to follow him in. Trusting that as we do, the eyes of the Lord will be toward the righteous and he will hear their cry. Verse 16, he will judge those like Saul or like the servants of Achish or like the enemies of Christ in both his day and ours who do evil. 
but he will deliver the righteous from all our troubles. He will be near to us in our suffering, verse 18, our afflictions that will be many as we follow this king. He will keep our bones even as he kept Christ so that on the other side of our suffering is the same deliverance that was his. He will redeem the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is a promise of final vindication. Even as David is rescued and finally vindicated before those who sought his life and Christ was vindicated on the third day in the resurrection, so he tells us, none of those who take refuge in me will be condemned. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The psalm speaks of the ultimate vindication of all who belong to this king because of his faithful suffering, humiliation, and deliverance who walk by faith in his footsteps. And Christ is here calling us as we walk in his footsteps to sing this song, rejoicing in how God saved him and will save us too. And we'll be nearer when we suffer, he will be near to us when, when the things that we suffer cause us to be brokenhearted. He will comfort us when we mourn. He will hear us when we cry. In verse 5, as we look to him, in the midst of all of those things, it says he will make our faces radiant. This is a promise that Paul actually echoes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he speaks of Moses' radiant face in Exodus 34 as he had met on a mountain with God. But, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the radiant, shining face of Christ is better. Then he goes on to say that as we look to him, Christ that is, that we will be transformed into that same glory. As we commune with him, and seek him, and listen to his word. Verse 8, taste and see that he is good through the gospel of Jesus Christ in both word and sacrament as our gaze is, is lifted to this suffering king who was humiliated and crucified, yet none of his bones were broken, and God delivered him from death. It's in the gospel of our Lord Jesus that this psalm here narrates for us that we taste and see that the Lord is good. It's in the the gospel of our Lord Jesus that we look to him and are radiant and are given the grace that we need to follow him the way that he calls us to in verses 12 through 16 of this psalm. As we look to the pioneer of our faith, trusting that as God has dealt with the king, so he'll deal with us. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is the promise of the gospel that Psalm 34 directs us to, guaranteed by Christ who calls us to sing this song with him. And through it, to taste and see that he is good. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for how you delivered David delivered your son who was humiliated, his glory veiled, as he was arrested, mocked, and crucified. But you were near to him when he was brokenhearted. 
You saved him. And he was crushed in spirit. That was true of David languishing in that Philistine prison where you bottled his tears. And it was true of Christ as he cried loud tears of anguish both in Gethsemane and at the cross. Your eyes were toward him and you heard his cry and delivered him so that he was not finally condemned. But you kept all his bones and not one of them was broken. You redeemed the life of your servant. And Father, we thank you that by union with Christ, you give us this same promise. That even as you heard the cry of that poor man and answered, you will hear us in him. And you will provide for us so that we lack no good thing. You will comfort us when we mourn. You will make our faces radiant as we look to your son. Father, we thank you for all of these promises in the gospel where you make us to taste and see that you were good. We pray that you would help us to taste and see that goodness even now and so equip us by having tasted and seen that you were good, by having lifted our gaze to the crucified and humiliated but now risen and exalted king. We pray that by doing that, by Tasting and seeing you were good and and beholding the radiance and beauty of Jesus in the gospel that by having done those things, you would equip us to walk in the way of faithfulness that this psalm calls us to. Turning from evil, keeping our lips from speaking lies, seeking peace and pursuing it and crying out to you in prayer. All this we ask in the name of of our crucified and risen King, 